You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a compilation of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, entitled The Festivals and Their Meaning. This is Lecture 27 in the series. Uh, It's in the last section of Michaelmas in the book, and in that book, uh, that subsection, it's entitled uh, Michael and the Dragon. It is number six in that series. And it was given uh, at the Gertianum on the 30th of September, 1923. When we turn our gaze back into earlier times of human evolution, We are inevitably struck with the change that has come about in our conceptual pictures of nature and of spirit. Nor do we need to go back very far to observe this change occurring. As late as the 18th century, the forces and substances of nature were thought of in a much more spiritual manner than they are today, while spiritual things were conceived more in pictures taken from nature. It is only in quite recent times that ideas about the spirit have become so utterly abstract, and ideas about nature have become based on matter that is devoid of spirit and so impenetrable for human thought and vision. For present-day human understanding, nature and spirit are sundered from each other. There appears to be no bridge leading from one to the other. It is for this reason that images of a sublime worldview, which in past times had great significance for the human being as he sought to comprehend his place in the universe, have passed completely into the realm of things deemed to be no more than airy fancy, to which man could only give himself up so long as an exact science was not there to forbid him. One such cosmic image is that of Michael fighting with the dragon. This picture belongs to a time when human beings traced back their own evolution quite differently from the way that is taught in our times. The modern view of man's origin looks back into the past to find beings less and less human, less spiritual, from whom we are descended. In earlier times, people traced back the evolution of mankind to more spiritual conditions of existence than prevail today. They looked back to a pre-earthly condition when the present form of man did not as yet exist, to a time when beings lived in a finer, less material environment than that which now surrounds and forms us. These beings were more, in quotes, spiritual than the people of today. Of such a being was the dragon being whom Michael fights, He was destined one day, in a later age, to assume human form. But he must bide his time. The time did not depend on him, but on the decree of spiritual beings who stood above him. Until that time he was to remain entirely within the will of these higher beings. But before his hour was come, pride grew in him. He wanted to have his own will at a time when he should have been still living in the higher will. He therefore stood in opposition to the higher will. 
independence of will was only possible to such beings in a denser matter than then existed. If they persisted in opposition, they must needs change and become different beings. This being found it impossible to continue to live in the same spirituality. His fellow beings felt his existence in their realm as disturbing, even destructive. Michael felt it so. Michael had remained in the will of the higher spiritual beings. He undertook to compel the opposing being to assume the only form which was possible for an independent will at that stage of the world's development, to assume animal form, that of the dragon, of the serpent. Higher animal forms had not yet made their appearance. This dragon was, of course, not materially visible, but supersensible. Such was the sole picture a person of earlier times had of the fight of Michael with the dragon. For him it was a fact that had taken place before there was nature visible to the human eye, E-Y-E, before man even existed in his present form. The world we know originated in the world in which this event took place. The kingdom into which the dragon was driven has become nature. In quotes, has assumed material form and become visible to the senses. It is, as it were, the deposit of the earlier world. The realm in which Michael has preserved his spirit-devoted will has remained above, purified, like a liquid from which a substance once contained in solution has been deposited. It is a realm that must continue to remain invisible to the senses, Nature, however, considered apart from man, has not succumbed to the dragon. The power of the dragon was not strong enough to appear visibly in nature. It remained in her as an invisible spirit. The dragon had to sunder his being from nature, which had become a mirror of the higher spirituality from which he had fallen. Into this world the human being was placed, he was able to partake in nature and in the higher spirituality. He thus became a kind of double being. In nature itself the dragon remained powerless. In nature, as it comes to life in man, he retains his power. The nature human beings receive into themselves lives in them as desire, as animal lust. Into this sphere the fallen spirit can enter and this made possible the fall of man. The adversary has found his abode in man. Michael has remained true to his own being. If we turn to Michael, with that part of our life which has its origin in higher spirituality, then the inward fight of Michael and the dragon arises in the soul. As recently as the 18th century, such a conception was still current, External nature was, to many, still the mirror of a higher spirituality, while nature in man was seen as the seat of the serpent with which the soul must wrestle, in devotion to the power of Micaiah. How would a soul in whom such conceptions were alive look upon outer nature? The time of the approach of autumn must needs recall the fight with the dragon. The leaves fall from the trees, 
all the flowering and fruiting life of the plants dies away. In spring nature welcomed and received man. Tenderly she cherished him through the long summer days, nurturing him with the warmth-laden gifts of the sun. When autumn comes, she has nothing more to give him. Her forces of decay press in upon him. Through his senses he beholds them in pictures. He must draw from his own being what hitherto nature has given him. Her power grows weaker and weaker within him. From the spiritual realm he must himself draw upon forces that shall help where nature fails. And with nature the dragon too loses his power. The picture of Michael rises up before the soul. Michael, the opponent of the dragon. That picture was dimmed when nature, and with her the dragon, was more powerful. But with the oncoming frost it appears again before the soul. And this picture is a reality. It is as if a curtain enclosing the warmth of summer were drawn back, revealing the spiritual world. We partake in the life of the year. We go with it in its course. Spring is our earthly friend and comforter, but in it enmeshes us in that kingdom where the adversary sets his invisible power within us as ugliness against the beauty of nature. With the beginning of autumn appears the spirit of strength in beauty. When nature hides her beauty, driving the adversary too into concealment. With such thoughts and feelings did people of ancient times keep the festival of Michael in their hearts. The picture of the fight of Michael with the dragon expresses a strong awareness that man himself must give to his inner life of soul the direction and guidance that nature cannot give. Our present-day thinking is inclined to mistrust such an idea. We are afraid of becoming estranged from nature. We want to enjoy her in all her beauty, to revel in her abundance of life, and we are loath to let ourselves be robbed of this enjoyment by contemplating nature's fall from the spiritual. In our striving for knowledge, moreover, we want to let nature speak. We fear to lose ourselves in all kinds of fantasy should we allow the spirit that transcends the perception of external nature to play a part in our striving for knowledge about the true nature of the world. Goethe had no such fear. He found nowhere in nature any estrangement from the spirit. He opened his heart to her beauty, to the inner power and might of all that she revealed. In human life he felt the presence of much that was inharmonious, much that grated and jarred, or that gave rise to doubt and confusion. In contrast, he felt an inner urge and impulse to live in communion with the eternal harmony and constancy of nature, from which he conjured many beautiful pearls of poetry. Goethe was, however, at the same time fully conscious of how the work of man must fulfill and complete the work of nature. He felt the full beauty of the plant world, but he also felt there was something incomplete about it. In what weaves and works unseen within the plant, there lay for him far more than manifests itself to the eye within the bounds of visible form. E.Y.E. Over and above what nature attains, Goethe also felt 
what we may call the purposes of nature. He did not let himself be deterred by the fear of thus personifying it. He knew that he was not subjectively dreaming such purposes into the life of the plant, but beheld them there quite objectively, just as truly as he could behold the color of the flowers. This is why he was so indignant when Schiller designated as, in quotes, idea, and not, in quotes, experience, the picture Goethe had briefly sketched for his poet friend of the inner laws underlying the growth of the plant. Goethe's reply was that if that were an idea, then he could see ideas with his eyes, just as well as he could perceive colors and shapes. Goethe was conscious of both the ascending and descending cycles of nature. He experienced the growth from seedling to leaf, bud, blossom, and fruit. But he felt, too, how all withers, decays, dries up, and dies away. He felt the life of spring, but also the fading of autumn. In summer his soul could live into the unfolding of nature, but in winter he could also share in her death with the same openness of heart. We may not find this twofold experience of nature clearly spelled out in Goethe's works, but we cannot fail to experience it in the whole gesture of his soul. It lives in him as an echo of the old perception of Michael's fight with the dragon. But in Goethe this experience is lifted up into modern consciousness. There was no further development of Goethe's approach in the 19th century. This must now be striven for by a newly evolving faculty of spiritual perception. Our experience of nature is incomplete as long as our inner being shares only in her ascending life, in seed, shoot, leaf, bud, blossom, and fruit. We also need to have a feeling for nature's decay and death. This will not estrange us from nature. By all means, let us experience spring and summer, but let us enter into autumn and winter as well. Spring and summer require us to give ourselves up to nature. We emerge from ourselves and grow out into it. Autumn and winter call on us to withdraw into our own human domain and oppose the death and decay of nature with the resurrection of forces of soul and spirit. Spring and summer are the time of the soul's nature consciousness. In autumn and winter we must experience our self-aware human consciousness. As autumn approaches, nature withdraws her life into the depths of the earth. She takes all sprouting and blossoming away from our sight. What remains is not fulfillment, but hope, hope for a new spring to come. Nature leaves man alone with himself. Then begins the time when we must prove to ourselves, by means of our own forces, that we are alive, not dead. Summer said to us, quote, I receive your ego, your I, I let it bloom with the flowers, I sustain and nurture it, close quote. But Autumn says, quote, descend into the depth of your soul to find the forces which sustain your eye, while the life of nature is hidden in the depths of the earth, close quote. Goethe resented Haller's thought, quote, into the core of nature's being no living mind can delve. Happy is he to whom she shows even her outer shell, close quote. Goethe's feeling was, quote, 
Nature has neither core nor shell. She is all one, is one and all. Close quote. Nature needs death in order to live. We can also live with her dying and fully experience it. By so doing, we enter more deeply into the inner being of nature. In our own organism, we experience our breathing and blood circulation. They are our own life. The germinating life of the spring is in reality as near to us as our own breathing. It entices our soul out into nature consciousness. So too the death and decay of autumn is in reality no further away from us than our own blood. It forges a consciousness of self within us. The festival of a consciousness which is self-aware, which brings us close to our true humanity, is present when the leaves are falling. We only need to become conscious of it. It is the festival of Micaiah, the festival of the beginning of autumn. The picture of Michael triumphant can live in us. In summer we are received lovingly into nature. But if we would not be deprived of our own center and balance, we must not lose ourselves in her, but be able to rise up in autumn to strengthen the spiritual nature of our own being. The end of Lecture 27